Good morning. Please stand with me as we read together responsively our call to worship, which is found inside your bulletin. It comes from Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Let us pray. What a mighty God you are. Angels bow before you. Heaven and earth adore you. What a mighty God you are. And here today we gather to worship you and adore you, to lift you up. Oh God, receive and accept our praise and our love and our gratitude for all the great things that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
What a great promise that he, his grace, his power cannot fail throughout all of eternity. And we've gathered here to worship this God. We want to give you a moment to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship. So before you're seated, uh, share a word of peace with uh, others who are here this morning. As we come to this time of year, it's been our practice for a number of years to take a moment and offer prayer for college graduates. We'll be praying special prayer time for our high school graduates in a few weeks. But today, we want to pray for uh, those who are graduating from college. And so uh, what we'd like to do is we we'll to ask you to do something embarrassing, ask you to stand. And uh, if you stand, and then uh, we'll ask others in the church to come and gather around you as we pray together. So if you're a college graduate, getting ready to graduate, please stand. And uh, we want to pray for you. See one in the balcony? You're down here. So if those of you who are around them could just gather uh, around them. Maybe if you have to walk a little distance, that's all right. But maybe a hand on the shoulder or just gather around them. Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of education. We probably take it for granted. We are so blessed. And we thank you for each person standing here before us. And we, uh, we celebrate this great accomplishment in their lives. And today we pray for them. We pray that they will know your your peace upon them in uh, perhaps a time of uncertainty that lies ahead. We pray that you will give them a great sense of fulfillment in completing this task and a sense of leading as they move to the next stages of life. Father, more than anything, we pray that you will continue to work in their hearts, transforming them into your image, filling them with your grace. That as the days progress, they will have this real sense that they are more and more becoming like Christ because of your spirit at work in their hearts. We pray that as they go from this place to wherever they may go next, that they will continue to be beacons of light for you and for your kingdom. And we pray that they will know your faithfulness in the days ahead as they have known your faithfulness in the days ahead. That have been completed. Thank you for each life. And we give them to you. And we ask for your richest blessings upon each of them. And pray this through Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I wanted to, uh, to mention that uh, we next week move to... Uh, a different worship schedule, services to 8.30 and 11 o'clock. Uh, we will not have a 9.40 service beginning next Sunday, and that will continue through the summer. And you see the, the schedule on the back of the bulletin uh, from beginning from May to the end of August. So just please be aware of that. Also, we 
are still looking for some folks who will help with Children's Church. And if you could uh, do this, if you could help out in the ministry to our children, it would be greatly appreciated. And uh, you can sign up in the back or you can contact the church office. We'll get you in touch with the right people to, uh, uh, so you can help. Uh, also, there are a couple of uh, inserts in your bulletin. Uh, one of them is ways you can uh, connect through our food pantry to uh, the people that we serve. And if you're interested in that, please uh, fill that out and drop it in the offering plate or uh, hand it to one of the ushers as you leave or pastor or contact the church office as well. And the second insert is uh, about Nepal and the urgent need that uh, we, if you've seen the news at all, you know the, the uh, tremendous devastation that's taken place there. Uh, Christina Montoro is an academy student that really has had a sense of real heart for this need, and she's going to share just a couple moments about that and ways that we can be involved. Good morning. As many of you know, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit on Saturday, April 25th in Nepal, and the aftershocks have been over six in magnitude. About 7,000 people have died Thousands are displaced and people are living in tents because their houses are not safe. The Academy has a relationship with a ministry in Nepal called Sarah's House, which stands for the Savior Alone Reaches Asians. They are among the multitudes that are sleeping in tents. There have been many organizations that have sent aid to Nepal. Some of them include Samaritan's Purse, the Red Cross, Mercy Corps, and the Catholic Relief Services. The Lord laid it on my heart to do something, so I wanted to share this with you. These people need our help. I ask that you help them by keeping them in your prayers daily. Also, as Pastor West said, in your bulletin, there is an insert that can assist you if you would like to help send a check to the earthquake relief effort. This will help the Wesleyan Church assist the people in Nepal. Thank you, and uh, later in the pastoral prayer, we will spend some time praying for the people of Nepal and the situation there. I invite you now to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Please pray with me. Eternal God, giver of every good and perfect gift, we bow before you, acknowledging our corporate sin and our need for corporate forgiveness. In this past week, as your people, we have doubted your goodness. We have pursued the idols of wealth and possessions. We have lusted for power. We have spoken harsh words and ignored people who are in need. We have spread gossip and listened eagerly at the misfortune of others. Most grievously, we have been consciously and subconsciously negligent to give thanks for your blessings. As your people, forgive us and lead us in the way to everlasting life through Jesus Christ. Amen.
The Old Testament scripture reading comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive of a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would serve the, see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his father and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored And became clean like that of a young boy. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to receive, help us receive our tithes and offerings, stand and sing, let us sing together the Gloria Patri. for the many blessings that you bring to us. And here we have this great opportunity, Lord, to give back out of our love for you and our worship of you. Take these gifts, these tithes, these offerings. Grant us wisdom to use them to your glory 
and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. spend some time in prayer together. We do want to pray for Nepal. We want to pray for the situation in Baltimore and other places of our nation where there's unrest and uh, other needs and concerns that you may have on your hearts today. If you'd like to, to use the altar rail as a place we offer your prayers, uh, I invite you to join me as we pray together.
Heavenly Father, it is our desire to have the mind of Christ. To be so filled with your spirit that we think as you think and we do as you do. Our attitudes are your attitudes. Our yearnings are your yearnings. We see as you see and we hear as you hear. All of our life wrapped up in you. And we pray that this will be so today. Father, as we come to this time of prayer, we are reminded that you invite us to bring to you all of our concerns and burdens. And today we know that there are those among us who are struggling with grief. It comes in a wide variety of ways and circumstances, and some of it is new, some of it we've been wrestling with for a long time. We pray that you will comfort and heal our grief. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health. We think especially today of Derek Mastin and Beulah Avery, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman. Pray for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Tim Nichols, Edna Howard, for Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar, and for others who are on our minds and our hearts today. And we ask for your healing grace in each of them. Father, we pray for this world in which we live. We think of our brothers and sisters who live in places of the world where they cannot gather for worship as we do. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would help them as they deal with opposition and threats and persecution and even death. May they know your presence with them and may they shine your light into the darkness. And may they know our love and our prayers. May we be inspired by their witness. Father, we pray for the people of Nepal. Our sensibilities are shocked and stunned as we see the devastation the loss of life, injured people, people displaced, uncertain of where to go and what to do, how they will eat, where they will find water to drink and shelter from the weather. Lord, it's overwhelming. And as much as we, as much as our hearts break for these people, yours breaks even more. These are all people that you have created and you know and you love. People you sent Christ for. We pray, Father, that in the midst of the devastation, there will be your ministering spirit of comfort and healing and hope. Father, let your people, the church, be a beacon of hope in the midst of despair. And we pray, Father, that somehow out of this tragedy, you will be able to to work good. Father, we pray for every person who is going to help, who is there on the ground helping. Watch over them, protect them, and give them the ability to minister to the needs that 
they encounter. And help us, Father, help us to be generous in every way that we can so that more help can come and more people can be assisted. Father, we also pray for our own nation and we think of the city of Baltimore and Ferguson, Missouri and other places where there is civil unrest and we're praying for peace. Pray for the leaders of these cities to make decisions that lead toward peace. Father, as these incidents and what has followed, it has stirred up once again that as sinful people, we do so much to hurt each other. That we wrestle with issues of race and class and all the societal structures. Father, we pray that somehow you will give us insight into how we might break down walls and barriers and build bridges of love and compassion. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit with us. We thank you for your mercy at work in our lives. And we offer our prayers today in the power of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Immediately following the scripture reading, uh, children are uh, free to go to Children's Church. And now as we read uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, I'd ask that you stand with me as with the tradition of the early church. Reading from John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, 
He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord.
seated. Are there experiences in your life where you tend to think these are the places and the times when I expect God to show up? And are there experiences in your life where you're thinking these are the places and the times where I don't really think about God showing up? I have a feeling that most of us live with that sense of of dichotomy about life. We have sacred moments, we have secular moments, and we don't really think about them crossing much. I've been thinking about that idea as I have been reading through and thinking about the last chapter of John's Gospel once again. It feels as if, if you read chapter 20, that John was done. He ends chapter 20 saying, and this is why I wrote this letter, so that you would believe Jesus is the Messiah, and believing in him, you'd have life in his name. And you can almost see the the end on the end of that. And then it's as though he says, oh, wait, there's one more thing I want to say. I want to tell you this story of Jesus by the lake. And chapter 21 is not an addendum as if it's somewhat disconnected from the rest of the gospel. It is, it is important to understanding the gospel as a whole. It, it, is, it is essential to, to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus who is resurrected and is in the world. And over the course of the next few weeks, I want to look at this from a variety of angles. But this morning, I want us to think about specifically this question of God in all of our lives. And, and I want to focus on kind of the mundane things of eating and working. Now, as this chapter unfolds, we find that the disciples are no longer in Jerusalem. They're in Galilee. They have been in Jerusalem for at least the first week or so after Jesus' resurrection. He appears to them there the night of his resurrection and then a week later. And he says, um, go to Galilee and wait for me there and I'll come see you. And so they go to Galilee and they've been waiting. And we don't know how long, but you get a sense that they've been waiting for a while. So much so that Peter, who is kind of chomping at the bit for something to happen, says to the guys, I'm going fishing. I've waited long enough, I'm going fishing. And they look at each other, okay, we'll go with you. We'll all go fishing. And there are some people who interpret that as they've sort of given up on Jesus. That they're done with him. They've moved on. Jesus is, you know, it was great to see him, but he's obviously not coming, so we're moving on. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think they're just anxious. They're probably a little bit bored trying to figure out how to spend their time. And they have, I mean, most of their adult life, they've been fishermen. So the natural thing for them to do when they're looking for something to do is to go fishing. Once they go out in the boat, they spend the night fishing, don't catch anything. Jesus says, he's on the shore, try the other side of the boat. They do, great haul of fish. They come in, Jesus fixes them breakfast and they have a great time together. Now, what intrigues me about this story is as you get to the end of it, and, it's, and John says, Jesus, Jesus gave them the fish, 
and Jesus gave them the bread. It almost has a feel of being sacramental. You know, it almost has the feel that you've been transported back to, to that room in the, in the upper room on the night that Jesus was arrested and, and he institutes for the first time this holy meal of bread and cup. It almost has that feel to it. And it becomes a holy moment because of that. But I'm convinced that if that is the case, if, if that's what is John and Jesus are trying to communicate, I don't think that's all that's trying to communicate. I don't think this is a holy moment just because it might have some connection to that night. I think it's a holy moment because of the moment. And Jesus is in it as they eat fish and bread. Things that we do every day and they do every day. And in that everyday ordinary moment of working out fishing and eating on the shore, we see Jesus involved in their lives. Now there have been people through the ages who have, who have said... Had a, I guess they could have had a sense that eating is kind of a necessary evil for us. Now, I'm not one of those people who says that. Just clear that up right up front. I do not see eating as a necessary evil. Now, eating too much is a whole other thing. But, you know, I, 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 I'm grateful for the chance to eat. And, I, and I, it's a great gift of God. But there have been people through the centuries who have said, if we could survive without eating, it would be better. Because eating is an urge, and the whole idea of being holy is to get rid of your urges. Now, I think that's a false understanding of being holy, but that was their perspective. And there, and there were people who, who said, you know, we want to spend as little time as possible doing this ordinary, mundane thing so we can get to the really important stuff, that's the spiritual things. And here we find Jesus sending us a completely different message. It's interesting to me that as Jesus, uh, when the disciples and John says to us, they didn't dare ask who he was. They knew it was the Lord. John makes that statement right after Jesus says, hey, guys, come on in and have breakfast. Not after he heals someone or does something that they go, well, only Jesus could do that. It's also Interesting to me that when they come in to the shore, the first thing Jesus asks them is not, so guys, how have your devotions been going the last couple of weeks? His first question is, anybody hungry? Let's eat. And it's not a word about that being a metaphor for something. There's no parable. It's just these people are hungry and they need to eat. We think back to when Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6. They're out there on the hillside and Jesus teaches them all day. And they get near the end of the day. And Jesus is realizing these people have been here a long time. They haven't had anything to eat. And he doesn't say, man, if these people were more spiritually sensitive, they wouldn't need to eat. Because I've got a lot more things to teach them. We've just gotten to page three of the workbook. We have a long way to go here. But you work with what you have, so we better give them to see about something to eat. No. He says, people are hungry. And he looks at the disciples and they say, don't look at us. 
That's not our job. We're here to feed their souls. Somebody else feeds their bodies. And Jesus says, "Hmm, that's not how it works. You guys feed them too. Feed their bodies as well as their souls. And that's the kingdom. God created us to be holistic people. And he cares about every part of our being. And and the, the needs that we have as human beings are not necessary evils. They're part of how God created us. And God is at work in things like eating and things like working. See, we tend to look for God in the spectacular. And that's how we tend to judge whether things are really spiritual or not. Did something spectacular happen? And we tend to ignore God in the ordinary, in the common, in the less than spectacular. That's what made me think of 2 Kings chapter 5 in the story of Naaman. Naaman is the commander of the Syrian army. He has leprosy. He has a servant girl who's from Israel. And she says, I know a guy who can take care of that for you. So he goes down there. It's a, you know, it's a great story of the, of the king. And, uh, and, and he goes to Elisha's door eventually. He knocks on the door. And the servant says, answers the door. And he tells him what's going on. And the servant goes and tells Elisha. Elisha says, go tell him to wash in the Jordan River seven times and he'll be healed. And the guy doesn't say, wow, that was easy. Great, let's go. He's upset. He's irritated. That's it? That's all I get? I figured, I'd, first of all, at least see the prophet. I mean, that important. And then he would, he would, you know, lay his hands on me and, you know, make some motions and, and do something really fancy and exciting and say some cool words, and then I'd be healed. I can go to better rivers in Syria than the Jordan and wash. And he has some, you have to give a lot of credit to his servants. I mean, they care a lot about him and they have a lot of guts. And they say to him, um, sir, if he told you something crazy to do, you would do it. So why not do the simple thing that he said? Good point. And he goes, he washes, and he's healed. Naaman thinks God can only show up in something spectacular is taking place. And the truth of the matter is, God is at work in every moment of our lives those places and times and circumstances that we call spiritual and exciting and the moments that we call ordinary and mundane and routine. The kinds of lives that most of us live. Because most of our days are probably better defined by routine than exciting. And God is in those moments. God wants us to understand that maybe it's in those routine moments that he might be able to do more in our hearts than in the spectacular moments. I read recently an article in Christianity Today by Bradley Nasif. It's a, I think the title of it was called The Monotony of Work. And, and he talks about, uh, takes us back to the desert fathers and mothers of the 4th and 5th century and talks a lot about their view of work. And he says, they tended to see work as heavenly sandpaper. That doing work kind of rubbed the rough edges off of us. It it humbled us. 
Doing work helped us to understand the creative nature of God. Doing work helped them to to see God in in the work that they were doing, however routine or ordinary it might be. And, And they talked about the fact that it wasn't important just to till the soil, but what tilling the soil was doing in our own hearts. See, we tend to to run away from the mundane things thinking so we can have time for God. Their mindset was God is in the mundane things. God is in the routine. And he tells a story about uh, one of the fathers named John the Dwarf who decided one day that he was in his younger years and he decided he, he wanted to be free of all of the, the stuff of the, of the earth and so he went to his elder brother and he said, I want to be free from this stuff. And I, I want to be like the angels who don't do any work. They just unceasingly praise God. And so he took off his cloak and he went into the desert. And a week later he came back and he knocked on the door. And his elder brother answered the door and looked at him and he said, who are you? He said, it's me, your brother, John. His brother said, it can't be. My brother's an angel. He's no longer on earth anymore. He said, no, it's really me. And he shut the door. And he left him outside all night. And the next morning, he opened the door and he said, now you realize that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you work. You do mundane things. You live ordinary life. And God's in that. And John fell to his feet and begged his forgiveness. There's something in that that resonates with me about how I view what I do and how I do it. The the ancient fathers talked about work being one of the primary ways in which God develops Christ-likeness in us. And they said that our highest vocation is not the kind of work we do. It's the kind of people we become while we're doing it. I think part of our problem is that we, we have a skewed view of God and the kingdom. See, for us, work is a means to an end. We're all about getting to the end. And the, the fastest, quickest, easiest way to the end is how we live our lives. We're all about shortcuts. But God keeps telling us that the kingdom is not about shortcuts. In fact, there are no shortcuts in the kingdom. There is just the process, the journey of living day by day, moment by moment with Christ. And if we do that, then we get to the end God wants for us. But the irony is, if we're all we're looking at is the end, we never get to the right end. Because all we're thinking about is the shortcut, the easy way, the simple way, instead of the process. And the process is so vital because it's in the process that God does the work in us that he needs to do. That process that takes time of rubbing off the rough edges and changing our attitudes and our hearts that simply don't happen overnight. You think about Jesus, again, going back to him feeding the 5,000, He doesn't just pull fish and bread out of a hat. 
This little boy brings him his lunch and he, and he does something with that. Jesus says, so what do you guys got? What, what do we have to work with here? But somebody has to catch and process that fish. And someone has to plant and harvest the wheat and grind it into flour. And someone has to add salt and sugar and water and yeast. And someone has to bake it. And someone has to give it to this little boy so that he can give it to Jesus. And in my mind, I'm thinking, that's a lot of wasted time. Why can't we just go from seed to bread and eliminate all that middle stuff? That'd be a lot more productive. We'd feed a lot more people. We'd get a lot more things done. Wouldn't that be better? But God doesn't seem to agree with me. Jesus tempted in the wilderness. 40 days he's been fasting. He is desperately hungry. Why not turn rocks into bread? What's the big deal? I think the big deal is because Jesus knows God doesn't work like that. There is still the, 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 the sense of trusting God to supply his need without taking a shortcut. And every temptation that Jesus encounters in the wilderness is to take a shortcut. And every temptation that comes to us is to take a shortcut. To live our lives thinking it's about just how fast we can get to the end. Not the work and the ordinary mundane way of life that gets us there. When I read the scriptures, one of the things I find about Jesus, and I think you see this about of God in the Old Testament as well, is that God is never in a hurry. And it drives people crazy. I don't know about you, but it drives me crazy sometimes. In fact, if you said anything, you might say there are times where God showed up late. But his timing is always perfect. And he never hurries. So why do we? Why are we always in a hurry? Why are we always stressed? See, I'm convinced if we could live our lives seeing God in the ordinary, seeing God in the mundane, it would eliminate a whole lot of stress and worry and anxiety about what we're not doing for the kingdom, about what what we're not getting accomplished. And again, it doesn't mean that we're being lazy. Scripture's clear. We work. It's a part of what it means to be a human being and a part of what it means to be the kingdom, in the kingdom. And I think that will be our eternal existence. I think we will work all through eternity. It'll just be different because it won't won't drive us. Our work won't, um, it won't rule over us like it does now. See, now we've become workaholics because either we want more stuff And you have to work to get money. Or we want recognition. And in both cases, if you boil them down, it's something here means more to me than Jesus. And something here can fulfill me in a way that Jesus can't. And so we work ourselves to the bone. And somehow we live in the tension between not letting work control us, but 
not being lazy or apathetic about the state of the world either. Because when this story is done, Jesus has a commission for Peter and the disciples. They aren't just going to lie around on the beach all the rest of their lives. He's got work for them to do. But in the right time, in the right way, in his processes. I think Jesus wants us to understand that he, that he is with us and he's at work in every moment of life. Those times that we think are exciting and, and supernatural and extraordinary and the times that quite frankly we consider kind of ordinary and mundane and boring and monotonous. In every moment, he's with us. You know, in the last few couple of decades, parts of the church have, have gone to calling the season of Pentecost ordinary time. And uh, so instead of being in the season of Pentecost, talk about being in ordinary time. And, and I kind of like and dislike that change. I dislike it because it sends the impression that this is ordinary time, but these are, these are the times you really want to be in. You know, you want to embrace Advent and Lent. Now, those, there are some times there. This is just ordinary time. And, and I don't think that's at all what it means, but it can communicate that. But I like it because, quite frankly, it reminds us that in ordinary life, and Pentecost is, uh, is almost half of the year, that in Pentecost, in ordinary time, Christ is present. And even if it's not something like Christmas Day or Easter Day or Epiphany or any of the other parts of the seasons of the year, Christ is just as present and he is just as much at work in what we call ordinary time as the other time. And I want to learn that lesson. I want to be able to see Christ in my every day when I'm preparing sermons and when I'm filing. When I'm standing up here in front of you and when I'm turning in a report to my district superintendent. When I'm cleaning up my office after the whirlwind of the weekend. And whether your work is inside the home or outside the home, Christ is present and he wants us to know that he's present. So whether you're mowing the grass or weeding the garden or preparing a meal or changing a diaper or sitting in a committee meeting or rewiring something in the wall or building something or milking cows or preparing a lecture, whatever it is we're doing, Christ is present. And I sometimes wonder if it isn't in those ordinary moments that we might actually find more spiritual growth than some of the other moments because it's a lot more difficult to trust when nothing is happening. It's a lot more difficult to believe Jesus is present when it feels like we don't really need him. 
And it's a lot more important to trust all the time. But maybe the challenge to trust is even more difficult when it kind of seems like we have no reason to need to trust. Eugene Peterson talks about work as a container for grace. That when we engage ourselves in everyday, normal life of work, of just living, we are modeling Jesus. And when we, when we follow Jesus, then the spirit of Jesus comes out of us. We become agents of grace and justice and mercy and compassion and love. Isn't it what Paul writes to the Colossians? Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, Whatever you do, whatever you do. I think it was Oswald Chambers who said something like this. There is no such thing as secular life or sacred life. There's just life. And Jesus lived life. My question for you and me is, do we? Are we so in tune to Jesus that we just live life and we see him in every moment? When we expect him, when we don't. Heavenly Father, thank you. For wanting to be involved in every moment of our lives. We thank you that because Christ is risen, there are no more boundaries on what he can do and where he can go, how we can use our lives. Freedom. We pray, Father, that you will give to us eyes to see you every moment. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. As we prepare to sing this last song, I want you to think for a minute about something that may happen today or this week that, quite frankly, you you probably wouldn't expect God to be in that. You probably wouldn't expect, you you wouldn't be thinking, at least naturally, that that would be a moment where you would experience Christ. And ask him, even as we sing, ask him to help you see him in that very moment. Let's stand as we sing.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.